When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. listeners uh thanks for tuning in this is of course our bonus episode for the month of december Mm -hmm. so uh we've kind of decided that there's so many great movies coming out here in the back part of the year as often tends to happen that it would be a great idea just to cram as many of them into your seeing and believing feed as possible so hence this episode yeah and a worthy choice for this one i think spoiler alert um yeah i don't know like it's it's nice to see that there are so many good movies coming out and honestly i wish we could spend more time talking about every single one of them yeah, but we have to pick and choose. Yeah, you know, uh, if you want to help us attain that goal, I mean, you do know where our Patreon is. We talk about it uh, a lot on the on the main episode, so we're not going to belabor that here. But the more uh, money we make off of that, the more we might stand to eventually, you know, do the two hour discussions of decision to leave that you we all we know that you all really want. I mean, I'm definitely clamoring for a two hour discussion of decision to leave. No bones about it. Yeah, maybe, maybe like a, a live commentary. We just sit down and watch it and talk about it at the same time mm-hmm. who knows that might be in the future but for now we'll focus on the present and maybe the past with our review of after sun this is uh charlotte wells's debut feature as both a director and a screenwriter after sun is about a young woman 11 year old sophie played by newcomer frankie corio who is at a fading vacation resort treasuring her rare time with her loving father, Callum, played by Paul Meskel. As the world of adolescence creeps into view, beyond her eye, Callum struggles under the weight of life outside of fatherhood. The film takes the form of Sophie's tender recollections of this vacation from the vantage point of adulthood, becoming over time a portrait of their relationship as Sophie tries to reconcile the father she knew as an 11-year-old with the man she didn't entirely know even in the present day as an adult. It's unclear, Sarah, how much of this movie is, strictly speaking, autobiographical Mm -hmm. uh, for Charlotte Wells, but it definitely takes the form of a memoir in the sense that it's about a person looking back at their past and trying to make sense of what they know now with what they experienced as a child. So we've talked a lot about memoir films, it feels like, over the last few weeks we've talked about armageddon time mm-hmm. we've talked about the fablemans now we're talking about charlotte wells's after sun so how does after sun work for you as uh as a memoir film maybe it's the subject matter maybe it's the way that it's presented where instead of being a portrait of a very long piece of a person's life it's it's a very short snapshot this works for me so much better than i think either of those previous efforts and we talked about the fablemans you know that i i liked the fablemans quite a lot i think it's a very good movie but i also think that it is difficult to pull off a story where you're essentially imposing a plot onto an actual life and after son is not interested in imposing a plot onto 
anybody, let alone, you know, it, its characters. This is basically a plotless movie. It's a father and a daughter at a Turkish resort, and that's pretty much it. The meaning of the movie doesn't come from any plot developments or um, anything that the characters are are saying or trying to do. It's in the mood and the tone that they find themselves in, in this resort. And then also in the layered revelations about who Callum, Sophie's father, was, as Sophie is watching um, just a recording of their vacation in the present day. So much of this movie is kind of spent in flashback. And then a lot of it is also spent watching these tapes that she took as an 11 year old of herself and her father. And so you get a little bit of that technology sort of mediating those memories a little bit. But like Sophie in the present day, we're kind of stuck sitting in our seats, leaning forward at the movie, trying to get a better sense of who these characters are and the clues that they leave for us just in the way that they talk or hold themselves. Not so much in what it is that they're trying to do, but just in how they exist in the world. And that's just such a, a fresh and interesting way to present a portrait of two people that I, I just couldn't help but be captivated by it. But I'm curious to know, are, are you and like me and Sophie on the couch, like leaning forward into this movie? I I am. I, I think this movie, I agree with you that this is by far the most successful of the memoirish films that we've watched here in the last few weeks. I think it's I, I don't know, head and shoulders above movies like Armageddon Time in the Field Winds. I think it's significantly better, though. And I think the reason I had that reaction to After Sun is that it's much more richly suggestive than mm. those other films are. There's kind of this... Um, this impressionistic quality to watching this film where, where you, you know, you see like a father and their daughter and it's nice that they're together and they've got a very, obviously very close relationship. And it's interesting to just sort of enjoy being around them. Mm -hmm. um, but over time you start to the, the background of, of their lives outside of this escapist vacation kind of begins to come into focus a little bit more. The more time you spend with them, the more the shape of their lives becomes apparent to to us in the audience. And as more of that uh, background becomes apparent to us, the more we understand them as people, the more we understand their their struggles, um, the true the true depths of their affection for each other. Like they're not just any loving father and daughter. They're a very specific father and daughter. And the film arrives there by get, essentially just giving us snapshots, like uh, video, home video footage, uh, just like uh, an outing that they go on together. There's again, there's not a huge narrative imposed upon this. It's just uh, just giving us snapshots. It reminded me a lot of actually of Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir in that hmm. way, which uh, was more narratively focused, but was very similar in the way that it used um, both straightforward depictions and scenes of interactions from a person's past uh, combined with move, uh, film footage that they took and the difference in the ways that those two approaches hit the, the viewer and the way that it is really richly suggestive, not just of what those experiences were on their face, but also what those experiences meant to a person. Mm. And I think that's where Afterson, I think, is so great is that it doesn't just give you the experiences. It lets you feel what they meant 
like the the true depth of feeling that undergirds all of it and that's something that i really wanted from a movie like the fable mins or armageddon time and I just felt like i never quite got and charlotte wells is the director who gives it to us and i think that's great yeah yeah she's so good at it especially because it's not just what's happening in the moment and then how those characters feel about it later on down the line like there's there is a multiplicity of experience happening on the screen all at once so you have just on its face this father and daughter going on vacation together right but then you also have 11 year old sophie's experience of it where she is very much still a child and so she's going to experience this vacation in kind of the Myopic isn't the right word for it, but but kind of that like very narrow focused way that a child would experience something like that and the kind of the way that they should experience something like that, where they're just focused on what is happening right there at that moment. They're going to sit next to the pool. They're going to listen to music. They're going to drink a lot of fun, fruity drinks and, and not really worry about what's happening outside of the bounds of this vacation. And then you also get Callum's experience on this vacation as well. And Sophie's experience of Callum's experience of the vacation too. So so we get this dual perception of Callum as a character from Sophie, the 11-year-old, who is a little bit oblivious to what's going on in Callum's world. And that's a good thing. And then there's also adult Sophie who is watching the tapes and remembering this vacation and scanning those tapes for clues as to what her father was going through at the time. Um, we get a sense that adult Sophie is probably right around the same age that Callum was when they went on this vacation together. And we also get a sense that she's just now starting to figure out precisely what it was, what emotional wavelength he was on and what he was going through at the time. And so we experience the movie After Sun in a very similar way to how adult Sophie watches these tapes of the vacation. This feels kind of like slow cinema to me in a way, but in a way where the camera is going to stay on and focused on a scene for much longer after I think another typical scene probably would have lingered. There's this great opening shot, not opening shot, but early shot of Sophie and her father coming into the hotel for the first time as, as they're starting their vacation. And she's exhausted. She's basically falling asleep on the bed. And he removes her shoes and he covers her with a blanket and turns out the light and then goes outside onto the balcony to smoke a cigarette. And you get the sense that he's sneaking that cigarette and he's not supposed to be smoking it. And then the camera just kind of rests on that and zooms very, very slowly on the door of the balcony past Sophie's sleepy bo sleeping body and onto Callum's restless form. And that restlessness and that very slow zoom are just doing so much work here to tell you about who Callum is and what he's wrestling with. And then also what Sophie in the present day, like what her emotional state is as she's watching this and trying to figure out like, is this thing that I am feeling the same thing that my father was feeling 20 years before? Yeah, it's it's wonderful that uh, we do kind of get that patience from this film where it's not going to artificially insert drama or 
have a scene where you say like, as you know, I used to take drugs. You know, like <laughs> yeah. th- there, there's nothing like that. It just feels wholly unforced and natural. And I think that's because we kind of get the sense that even when we're not directly seeing home video footage, the entire film kind of has the quality of captured moments rather than a crafted narrative. So there are, are scenes where in a lesser film, you might expect um, some drama to be drummed up. So there's a, a scene where Sophie kind of falls in with some some older teenagers who are, you know, they're they're there separately with a a group of like kind of a youth group of sorts, and you know they're they're drinking and they're making out with each other and they're engaging in mischief. And you're kind of if if you're used to watching lesser films of this nature, you're kind of expecting like, oh, there's going to be a moment where you know, one of them tries to get Sophie to to drink or one of them, you know, tries to cop a feel or do something bad. And, you know, it, her father's not going to be there. And it's going to be this horrible trauma. And you don't really, that's not what the film is interested in doing. Mm-hmm. That that tension is there in the background of these scenes. But Wells, uh, considering this is her debut feature film, is really disciplined about not exploiting that, but using it simply to suggest like things could have gone wrong. And the fact that um, Callum isn't always present to protect her in every single situation just illustrates how how tenuous his own uh, life is in the fact that he he's kind of figuring out this fatherhood thing himself. And, re- you know, even the most attentive father in the world can't be there 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. And Callum's got more going on than just being, you know, the best dad in the universe. Mm -hmm. And I think that that the way Wells is able to use that to not impose drama onto the story, but really just evoke is really marvelous. And she's evoking that drama on Callum's end too, right? So there is also not um, just like there is no, scene or moment where Sophie is exploited by the teens or the movie exploits Sophie um, because she is in the company of of some kids that she doesn't necessarily know and things could have gone wrong, but they don't. There's also no moment or no one moment that you can pinpoint where you get a really good sense for what it is exactly that Callum is going through either. It's all there in suggestion. So there's a stack of books on the dresser that are about meditation and Tai Chi and and Callum practices Tai Chi regularly in the background. And Sophie just thinks that he's doing it because he's her dad and he's there specifically to embarrass her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which all parents probably should do anyway. Um, But there's no one hint at what is going on in the turmoil in Callum's mind. You just know that there is some sort of turmoil. Turmoil. There is some sort of unrest. And Wells is smart enough to suggest that turmoil without coming right out and telling us about it. Um, it kind of feels like the opposite of what I'm usually asking for in movies, where what you really want is a lot of specificity in order to be able to draw out, like, I don't know, the universal, like, business of being alive and here there's specificity in the setting and there is specificity in the relationship between these two characters but there is absolutely no specificity with what Callum is going through or even what Sophie is going through and I think that makes the movie stronger because it doesn't feel maudlin or exploitative we just know that there is something going on and whatever it is it's not good and there is that 
feeling of disaster looming over the horizon that you kind of get from the tension in those other scenes where Sophie is unsupervised. And we don't have to know those details in order for the story to be meaningful. I, I mean, it's it's interesting that it, it, it's we often ask for kind of specificity in our stories. And I do feel like there is that specificity in this film. It's just, we're not allowed to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, that work has been done, I think, in in the writing and in the whatever directing that Wells did with Corio and Mescal, her, her two main actors. It kind of felt almost Linklater-esque to me. Like the mm-hmm. Jesse and Celine in the Before trilogy, um, you know, the, the creative process uh, between Linklater and, and his two stars extend far beyond whatever we see on the screen. There was a whole lot of discussion and act, actorly work and writing that went into that that's like an iceberg below the surface. It's there and it's important to inform the performances that we do see, but we don't need to see those things. We just have to see in the performances and in the little hints we get that that work has been done, that these are fully realized individuals. And I think that's pretty obvious here. I think it's also clear that Wells is intentionally leaning into that with the uh, intercutting of these impressionistic scenes where um, adult Sophie is on a strobe lit strobe dance floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can't see anything except whatever the strobe light illuminates at any given instant. So it's hard to make out exactly what's happening in these scenes. Uh, it's unclear necessarily what even the emotional tenor is, but it's it's a little bit unsettling and we're just getting snatches. And that's Wells giving us a clue that we're we're just getting snatches here, but for Sophie, snatches are all she has left of, mm. of her father. And she uses those snatches of memory to sort of reconstruct a fuller picture of who he was as, as a person and the role that he played in her life and made the sacrifices that he had to make in order to be part of her life. And the cumulative weight of those little snatches uh, over the course of the film reaches uh, a critical mass at the very end that gives it an emotional power. But it's not because, you know, Wells is really laying it on thick. It's just, it's like a snowfall. You know, each snowflake is tiny, but it accumulates into something very significant and weighty. Mm-hmm. And in a way that feels kind of inevitable, like the closing shot, which I don't want to talk about in, in too much depth on this because I think people should experience it for themselves. It's probably not a spoiler to talk about it, but at the same time, it's something that I think should be experienced first. That closing shot feels like a natural progression from everything else that came before it it kind of feels like it's the only way that the movie could have properly ended or or closed and it's just a, the camera making a simple turn from one character to another and then that's it but the way that that character makes that turn and then what the final character does after being focused on for the final time it's the only thing that that character could potentially have done and i feel like i'm dancing around it a little bit and i'm being uh, intentionally obtuse and that's because i think people really should just go out and seek out this movie and and watch it but that turn is something that that feels like it's the only thing that could have happened at the end of the story and it's the perfect capper but it's also not something that i would have predicted in the moment if that makes sense and i think that's the case for a lot of the other occurrences in this movie because 
you can't really predict what's going to happen on a vacation. There's just this like languid stretch of days that your two characters are experiencing with each other. And yet none of it is a surprise. And yet the way that it is presented where we're kind of scanning the frame for clues about Callum and about his mental state. And we're also just enjoying being on vacation with Sophie at the same time. Um, all of it feels natural. And then there's also that that level of meaning and layers of meaning that are kind of accreted on top of each other. And then there's that additional knowledge that adult Sophie is somewhere either remembering this or she is watching it and knowing that she is building additional meanings that she can't ever fully explain or ask her father about either at the same time. It's just, there's there's so many additional meanings and then whatever meanings that you're going to bring to it as well as, as, a, as a viewer. And I appreciate that Wells is willing to give us the freedom to map whatever it is that we want to or need to on top of this movie too, knowing that it's going to be meaningful either way. I think what makes this feel like a cut above most indie dramas is that it does have that elusive quality that you have to think about it more in order to really arrive at the full meaning. If you if you just sit down and sort of try to engage this on the level of a straightforward drama, you're probably going to come away a little bit dissatisfied. There's there's going to be a lot of gaps. You're going to feel like it was episodic, directionless. And the only way to really understand it and get on its wavelength is to engage in sort of the, the same sort of interpretive work that Sophie's engaging with as she remembers her her childhood and as she remembers this vacation. And I think that's kind of wonderful that Wells is able to bring the audience into the headspace of the character, not by pulling any sort of, you know, empathetic or emotional trickery mm -hmm. or, or, or maybe not trickery, but you know, there's, there's certain ways that a director can bring us into a, into another character's headspace, like, you know, lots of point of view shots or making sure that this character is in every single scene so that our perspective is very closely aligned with them. What Wells does is something far more trickier, I think, is that she makes us kind of do the piecing, do the same mental activity that Sophie, that adult Sophie is doing. Mm -hmm. And that is far more effective at bringing us into a certain uh, mental and emotional state than any number of writerly or directorly sort of uh, tricks about evoking emotion would have been. It's a trick, maybe not a trick. It's a device that I think trusts the audience to be able to pick up what Charlotte Wells is putting down mm -hmm. without talking down to them about it. Um, I do think that a lesser movie probably would have focused primarily on the viewpoint of 11-year-old Sophie without getting outside of her head at all. And I appreciate that this movie thinks highly enough of its audience that it's not going to try to put us just in 11-year-old Sophie's head. We can understand what she's thinking and what she's feeling. She's going to tell us that at a couple of moments in the movie. Like there's this great moment where she's just laying out on the bed. I think it's like mid-afternoon and she's talking about just how tired she is. And I think she captures the feeling of having been on vacation for a few days too long maybe, where she talks about how none of her bones work and she's just done with everything. And then the movie just moves on from that moment. Um, 
But it's not just focused on that one specific viewpoint. It's also focused on what Callum is thinking as his daughter is telling him all of these things at the exact same time, too. I think he's in the other room, brushing his teeth, looking at himself in the mirror. And at one point, she talks about how um, she just feels so deeply tired, and he agrees with her. And you can tell that they're talking about different forms of tiredness. And then I think he even spits on the mirror in his own face. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tender moment. And it's a moment where the movie extends the empathy that Callum is not able to extend to himself in a way that doesn't feel maudlin. It's very unstudied. And then when the scene is over, Callum and Sophie leave the room and they go to dinner and the camera stays there. And it's still focused on the mirror and it's still focused on the spit that Callum left on the mirror and it just sticks there for a few extra seconds, um, which is kind of where that slow cinema idea that I was thinking about was coming from, is that this movie is willing to put us in those characters' headspaces and also put us into Sophie's headspace, but it's also willing to let us just sit and contemplate what is going on, even at a moment that none of these characters would have ever been privy to. The the well-worn chestnut about movies being empathy machines, I mean, it's a chestnut for a reason. It is true. Mm-hmm. But it does feel like Wells has arrived at a way of presenting this story that is a fresh way of evoking empathy rather than kind of like a lot of devices that we're used to. So uh, the the scene that you mentioned where Sophie is asleep and the camera slowly zooms in on Callum out sneaking a cigarette on the balcony – that's not a moment that Sophie is privy to. She's sleeping. Mm-hmm. And so, but because this, and it, this is ostensibly adult Sophie's recollections, the conclusion is that she's sort of filling in gaps herself. Like essentially her mind's eye is the camera and it's not mm-hmm. necessarily something that literally took place. But the important thing is she's imagining what her father did when she drifted off to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that is also, in again, it's an invitation for the audience to imagine, well, what is going through his head while his back is to us? And he's kind of like doing those Tai Chi moves. What is he trying to make peace with? What is he trying to overcome? Um that's something that the movie never tells us specifically what those things are. We're invited to imagine with Sophie what those things are. And that is that is the work of empathy. It's not it's not telling us how to empathize with him because we understand his pain. It's asking us to empathize with him because we don't understand his pain and we want to. Mm. And that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do think it should probably be said, we've been talking about a lot of like really heavy pieces of this movie, but this movie doesn't feel heavy either. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like we're being given a burden to bear. It doesn't feel like we're being told to carry these characters' pain for them necessarily. It just kind of rests on the surface there, and we're always aware of it, but we're never asked to shoulder anything that would be unpleasant or uncomfortable to bear. It's just we're asked to contemplate it a little bit and then enjoy that time with these characters. And we're also told to treasure this time with these characters because both of them are clearly enjoying each other's company. And I wouldn't call it a comedy. I don't think that there's too much that's outright like laugh out loud funny, but there are moments of levity, mostly with Callum trying to embarrass his daughter in public. Um, he's good at being an embarrassing dad. He's extremely good at being an embarrassing dad. Um, and 
in a way that feels both unstudied and also extremely true to life. I know that I have shouted at my own parents multiple times for dancing in public, and Callum is willing to go out and do the exact same thing to his daughter, too. And it feels funny because it feels so deeply true. The choreo and mescal are so good as the leads here. They capture that kind of that very casual intimacy that family members have where they they can needle each other a little bit and it's not mean or or even unwelcome it's just it's kind of a comfort that arrives from only having spent literally your entire life with somebody (laughs) and the way that these two actors are able to to capture that is really great especially from choreo who i think this is her first role Mm -hmm. and the fact that she's able to really feel like kind of a an immature 11 year old joshing around with her dad is is really great and that's what uh makes it feel like less sort of like this indie drama weepy and more like just a slice of life where that slice of life is 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 just uncommonly compelling because of the frame that wells puts around it mm-hmm. yeah and that slice of life gets additional meaning that is that is kind of piled on top of it because we know after the fact that something has happened and this may be one of the last times that these two characters have have spent together that is good and happy and neither of them are aware of it at that moment and yet at the same time we as the audience kind of have that hanging over our heads a little bit and again hanging over our heads make it makes it sound like this movie is incredibly deeply dour this is also a movie that makes a lot of comedy and drama out of an 11-year-old very badly singing karaoke to re- losing my religion. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really great. Um it uh David Ehrlich uh in in his capsule review for this uh mentioned that there's something about home video footage that feels haunted. Hmm. And I think that that's a wonderful insight to why this film works. Is it does feel like there's something haunting this film and if you think about kind of the uh the title of the uh biography of david foster wallace every love story is a ghost story Hmm. if in fact this is kind of one of the the last um very complete happy memories that sophie has of her father uh at least uh on vacation together with him then it is sort of a ghost story there there's something that is no longer present in her life as an adult um and she's kind of Re, you know, retracing the string and trying to follow it back to its being, kind of really understand what was really there. Mm-hmm. And I, it's complex and simple at the same time. And I don't really know quite how Wells pulled it off. Yeah. And yet she pulled it off and it's incredible and everyone should watch this movie. Yeah. Well, listeners, that is our review of After Sun. If you uh, want to check it out, it should be on streaming starting December 20th. And it is worth whatever, you know, a couple bucks to rent or uh, a just subscription. Buy it. Just Honestly, buy it. just buy this movie. Support Charlotte Wells and her artistic vision because it's, it is tremendous. It's it's worth seeing for sure. And if you get a chance to see it, definitely let us know your thoughts. We're super interested in that. And 
want to be big boosters of this film as well. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Well, that'll do it for our December bonus episode. Thanks for tuning in, listeners. Uh, There's going to be more episodes coming down the pike. We've got another one planned for January, of course. But for now, we'll leave it there. Uh, Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Network. You know the usual spiel at the end of our main episode, so I won't belabor that here. But we really appreciate you listening, and we really appreciate After Sun. Mm -hmm. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.